Hi, everybody. Welcome to Mormonish. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Landon. And we have a wonderful guest on today. We have the amazing Colby Reddish. How are you today, Colby? I'm great. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you, Landon. Yeah, we are very excited to have Colby on um, kind of behind the scenes on different like Slack channels and emails. I'm, you know, talking back and forth with Colby a whole bunch and just really admire him and, and his insights and, and everything that he has to say. We've been trying for a while to come up with, you know, we got to have you on. We want to talk, you know, back and <laughs> forth. And so we finally were on a podcast together. And it was a Mormon Stories podcast, although it was Colby and RFM and myself talking about the recent developments in the Huntsman lawsuit uh, case. So that's an interesting one if you want to go out and find that one. But in the course of communicating back and forth about getting that uh, podcast ready to go, uh, Colby brought up some really interesting thoughts, things that he'd been working on, a Reddit post that he'd made recently. So Landon and I read that and we're like, oh, this is very interesting. We want to see if Colby will come on and, and kind of flesh this out for everybody and, and talk about this some more. So we're super excited to have him on today. Let's start uh, with Landon. Why don't you read his bio? And then I think we'll just dive right in. You guys are really going to find this incredibly interesting like we did. Yeah, absolutely. Colby is an attorney in private practice in Boise that also teaches law students as an adjunct professor and has previously worked for all three branches of Idaho state government, as well as a criminal prosecutor. Before leaving the church, mostly over its abuse policies last year, Colby taught all four years of adult gospel doctrine, served with the youth, and graduated from BYU. Both Colby and his wife are returned missionaries serving in Arizona, prior MTC teachers, and they love their life more authentically now than ever before. Uh, he's appeared on several post-Mormon uh, uh, shows, including Mormon Stories, Radio Free Mormon, and Nemo the Mormon. So welcome, Colby. He's an attorney. That means he qualifies to be a general authority. So we're <laughs> all excited. <laughs> Had you only stayed in, you were on the track. <laughs> That's right. That should have been my retirement plan. I don't know what I was That's thinking. Should have been it. You know, and I swear when we read these bios like this, I just feel like whichever general authority it was that said the best and the brightest are exiting. There you go, right there, the absolute best and the brightest. So, but we're glad you're here on our show now. <laughs> well, you can add it to thanks. your bio now. <laughs> you can add it to your bio and they'll go, what's Mormonish? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I did. I, every time I appear on one of these podcasts, um, I kind of get teased about having made the rounds and I'm like, it's just because I don't know how to say no. Mormonism didn't teach me how to like say no and, mm -hmm. and be like, no, I'm sorry. I'm too busy to yeah. do that. Yeah. No, you have but, to say yes. No, I'm really excited to be here. Like Rebecca talked about, we did a show um, talking about the tithing lawsuit that kind of spurred this discussion. And we're going to talk today about epistemology. And even though I'm not a philosopher, um, you know, the word epistemology really means the study of truth or the study of knowing how do we know things. And we'll kind of read a dictionary definition here in a minute. But one of the things I just wanted to explain is like, why is an attorney talking about this? Um, why I think most people probably can. Truth? <laughs> why is an attorney talking right. about truth? Is that what you're asking, Landon? <laughs> that's right. I, I think one of the things that's really interesting is having had um, the experiences I've had working inside of courtrooms, whether it was as a prosecutor or working um, as a clerk for um, judges um, and, and helping judges with different issues. One of the things I think is really interesting is that um, the rules of evidence and the way the law has evolved, uh, America is premised off of 
the common law, this what we call a common law system. We obviously have laws that are passed. Those are statutory laws. But we also have judicial decisions that help inform our laws. And a lot of the rules of evidence or the way that we manage what comes inside of a courtroom to try and help people determine what is true, those things have evolved over time. And so one of the things I like to talk about is how the rules of evidence help us can, can help us understand kind of how to make good decisions, how to determine what has happened. So that's one of the reasons that I think epistemology is so interesting. Now, I wanted to give a few disclaimers as an introduction, if that's okay. The first is, if you are an active believing Mormon that is happy inside of Mormonism, please don't listen to me. I am not talking to you. And I sincerely mean that. Like, it, I do not want to take away anyone's faith. My purpose is really, and the entire reason I've spoken out um, on any podcast that I've done is because when I started going through my faith crisis and I was really, really struggling to find support, there were resources and podcasts there for me that helped me not feel crazy. And I did. I felt like I was just racked with trying to figure out these things. And so that's really my only purpose. It is not to take away faith. It's not to make the church look bad. Although people never believe this, even though I say it every time, but my purpose is really to find common cause with the people who are struggling and trying to find out how do we make good decisions. I think the the last thing I'd say by way of introduction is because we're going to talk about epistemology and we're specifically going to talk about two flawed examples from Mormon epistemology. There, one of the things I wanted to share is that if I could teach every kid in the world one thing and only one thing it would be epistemology. And the reason is because if you have a sound basis for how to decide what's real and what's not, how to avoid fallacious arguments, how to avoid being taken advantage of, you can use that tool to teach yourself the the truest thing in any other sphere. So that's the one tool that if it's developed well, will allow um, kids and as they grow up and they have a love of learning, they have a love of reading. I know that Rebecca, that's a big thing for you with the Mormon Stories Book Club or the, sorry, the Good Book Club. Did I get that right? So well. many book clubs. We have the Good Book Club and the Mormon Stories Book Club. We just have a lot of books. It's a good thing. Great. Yeah. And I grew up um, as a kid and I, I just loved reading and loved learning. And so if I could teach kids, one thing, it would be how to have a valid epistemology and make good decisions. So yeah, I wish they had a critical thinking course in high school that just seems to be yeah. missing nowadays, you know, uh, with all the media and the untruths that you hear and the people trying to sway different people, a critical thinking that helps you work through that. It's so needed uh, to me. Oh, I, yeah. yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that should be at the top of the list in like, especially the, at the elementary level, because I think any later than that, it's almost too late, right? It has to be something that kids are taught from a very young age. <clears throat> and I wanted to share, so to kind of open, I recently finished um, Sasha Sagan's book. Sasha is Carl Sagan's daughter. Yeah, oh, she yes. wrote this, we love Sasha. Yeah, her book was incredible. So she wrote this book called For Small Creatures Such As We. Yep. Yep. It's about, oh, you have- Our book club read it. It was club, one of yeah. our- best meetings ever. And she was so kind. She emailed back and forth with us and answered questions. The book was very meaningful to us. So this is great that we're going to talk about it. Yeah, it opens with, so her her father, obviously, Carl Sagan was 
famous science educator, helped to create the Cosmos series, helped direct contact um, with his with his spouse, Anne Druyan. Um, and so Sasha has this uh, beginning story in the introduction of that book about how she used to go with her dad. He worked in um, he worked for Cornell and she used to go with him to uh, see like the stuffed animals in the museum. And she tells the story about how she would kind of like, and all of us have been this way as a little kid, right? You like see things out of the corner of your eye. And she was convinced that the displays were moving. And one of the things I love is that she starts this book with her profound feelings for her father and this quote that he shared with her, which is that it's dangerous to believe things just because you want them to be true. And so I thought that's a great quote. Well, there's a ton of great quotes from that book, but that's a great quote from Sasha, you know, telling the story about her father that kind of helps set the stage for why epistemology is so important. So the working definition of epistemology I just pulled from um, Oxford, the Oxford Dictionary is that is the theory of knowledge, especially with regard to the methods, validity, and scope. Epistemology is the investigation of what distinguishes justified belief from simple opinion. And I really liked that second phrase because epistemology is a field that has been studied dating back to ancient Greece. And that, that last phrase there, that justified belief, separating justified belief from opinion, sometimes you'll hear um, epistemology phrased as what is a justified true belief? And so one of the, the things I really want to focus on is that epistemology helps us to avoid believing things, even things that are true for bad reasons. So the entire premise behind having a valid epistemology is wanting to believe as many true things and as few false things as possible. Any thoughts on that and how it compares? I know you guys are running this great podcast in this post-mortem space. Any thoughts on how that... Um, definition or that kind of introduction to epistemology compares to either what you've seen inside the church or from your time inside the church or even in the post-Mormon space? How does that kind of connect with what you've seen? That actually is is one of the first times when my when my uh, shelf started to crack. Uh, I, I was working for a company and uh, this company was was building something and they had $10,000 a day that they went over for every day they went over, they had to pay $10,000 a day. Well, when I got there, they were over like two years. So you can imagine this is millions of dollars wow. now that they owe. And they put me on and said, you need to go figure out, uh, you need to write a, a reason why we're over and try to justify why we're over so that we can get, get out of this fine. And so, you know, obviously everyone had a story as to why they went over. This happened, this happened, this happened. And so my job was to try to figure out what really happened. And I had to go look for documents and I had to go look at timesheets. And, and people would tell me a story, but then when I'd go look at the documents, I'd go, well, that, that can't be. This, this isn't lining up with what the documents are saying. So, you know, I had to try to find the real truth out of all of these this scattered documents, I had to be able to try to put it together and find the truth. And I realized at that time that the truth will expose itself. It can stand on its own. It will be there. You can find it. You have to dig. People will tell you things, but you can't just believe it just because, hey, that's going to get us out of it if I tell this story. Well, someone else is going to pull up that document and prove me false. So I've got to really look at my stuff and I really got to know. And that that then got me thinking, when when my shelf started breaking with the church, 
I've got to look at this and I've got to really look at that evidence and decide for myself, what's the evidence telling me is happening here? Not what do I feel is happening or what are people mm -hmm. telling me? I've got to look for that evidence. So I, I wholeheartedly agree with what you said there. Yeah, we admire yeah. you, Landon, for going straight at it. A lot of people are not able to make that leap from something they look at critically in their in their professional life to turn it on to your deeply held religious beliefs. And that's very difficult. And I think about just from the point of view of a child, I, I've told this story before that I, I was always a little critical thinker. Even as a kid, I always was a divergent thinker. I looked at things in a different way. Uh, the story I tell a lot is um, I had to pay tithing from a very early age. It was a big deal to my parents. We'd have to go on Sunday and I'd have to hand the bishop the envelope. And I would see everyone else handing the bishop the envelope. I was only about four. And I said to my dad, well, how do we know that he's not taking it and doing something with it? How do we know he's not stealing it? You know, I'm trying to sort of look for truth, look to see what it is. And of course, my dad said, well, he's the bishop. Of course, everything's fine. You know, and that kind of point of view just continues through the church. Every time you have a thought, well, what if it's a different way? Or what if somebody's telling me something that might not be accurate? You're very, that's very quickly put down in a child and just listen and we're telling you and this is what it is. So so the idea that somehow you could teach children to be more critical thinkers, um, even outside of the religious beliefs like that is so important if there's a way to raise children like that or even institutionally train children. But yeah, it's it's an art. I think it's an art because a lot of people, it's very easy not to think critically like that. It's comfortable. Very comfortable. Oh, he, he, he didn't tell you he's not stealing it. He's investing it. Uh, in yeah. a Nobody told me anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna no, say we that didn't know that the... in the 60s. Yeah, we didn't know that in the 60s when I was paying tithing or the early 70s when I was six. Yeah, we didn't know about that. So I was going to say, yeah, that didn't that didn't age well. That little test or <laughs> concern that you had. Um, I think one of the other things that's so interesting to me uh, about um, Mormon epistemology is it is very feelings based. And I like, Rebecca, how you praised Landon for the way he was able to apply the tools that he learned, you know, in his professional life to the church. That is one of the things that I regret a lot is I considered myself a critical thinker, very uh, strenuous about how to decide what to do. And but when it came to the church, I have this huge blind spot, I think, like a lot of people do. Um, to be honest, if regular Christianity wasn't so uh, like premised on such ridiculous stories, also, I feel like I could have deconstructed Mormonism a lot better. But the reality is we live in a uh, country where the majority of people believe some, you know, very difficult to believe stories. We we have this discussion all the time. How did we how did we believe this? You know, and and uh, Rebecca, you know, she'll tell the story of her parents who are scientists. You know, mm -hmm. uh, and and some of the things they believed as you know a nuclear scientist that believes the Earth six thousand years old. Yeah, you know, that's my dad. <laughs> how does that happen? Yeah, yeah. It's compartmentalization. And, and I think there's so many examples too, like, and I can already hear like the YouTube comments, like this guy hates the Bible. And it's like, I don't hate the Bible. There's lots of good things in it. And there's lots of valuable information about the historical context that can be learned from it. But there are certain stories, like I remember it was actually on my mission that I was reading through the Old Testament, like cover to cover for the first time. And I came across the story in Judges 19 about um, the, the guy who goes to one of the cities at the borders of Benjamin 
And he basically allows his concubine to be raped all night and cuts her into 12 pieces and sends her all like sends the pieces all across the uh, the different to the different tribes and they get revenge on Benjamin. And I remember that was the moment I was just like, this is really weird. <laughs> like, what is going on in this book? But that's a total bird walk. My, my point is that there are a lot of claims that the Bible makes about the supernatural reality of the world we live in that so many people believe that I did not apply the epistemic standards that I would advise people apply today. And I kind of regret that. One of the things, so we're going to talk about some logical fallacies. And in fact, Rebecca, you gave a good example of one that, and we've been talking about a good example of one, which is that people don't apply the same standards to their own privileged beliefs that they do to other people's um, religious beliefs. And that's the informal fallacy known as special pleading, right? It's applying one set of epistemic tests to what you believe that would validate it, but not applying that even-handedly. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But one of the things I wanted to note about fallacies, because this is a common error I see, it's important to recognize that a fallacious argument does not, like if someone makes a fallacious argument, it does not demonstrate that they are wrong their conclusion could still be true. But a fallacious argument cannot tell you or cannot assure you that that conclusion is true. So it's a useless tool. It can't tell you truth from fiction. And so even if you believe in true things, we should all seek to eliminate the use of informal logical fallacies because they can't tell us truth from fiction. Any thoughts on logical fallacies? Yeah, give us an example. What would you say our viewers could could kind of take to heart as an example of that? Yeah, so we talked about special pleading. So special pleading is applying one um, set of tests to your beliefs versus another. One that we'll talk about here in a moment is what's known as the Texas sharpshooter fallacy. That's a fallacy where you count the hits and you ignore the misses. And since you two have a lot of experience with um, Joseph Smith and Mormon truth claims, I'm sure you're fairly well-versed in at least how a Texas sharpshooter fallacy looks. Have you seen that one before, Landon? Um, I'm, I'm trying to think through uh, some of those examples. Like uh, I, I was trying to figure out, it, it, is the argument say, uh, well, God can do anything. It, it would that be a fillet because that seems to be the one I see all the time is you, you'll point something out and then they say well God can do anything so therefore Fix and I'm that, going, handle that. Well, how, how, how do I argue that how, how do I you know, counter God can do anything uh, you that's a trump card you can just throw out at any argument and I've lost so does that fit that yeah, I think that would probably fit as a um as a, either a Texas sharpshooter or a uh, probably more squarely fits as a special pleading. It's basically creating this special category, God, and he can do anything he wants. So he's not subject to the same rules that everything else is. So we see that one a lot. Another really common one is the straw man. So the fallacy of a straw man. That's where you basically put words in your opponent's mouth. I think this happens to um, you know, I hate this phrase, but critics of the church, I think that happens to critics of the church all the time where they make a legitimate point or a legitimate complaint. Um, and what's offered up in response is usually a parade of like, well, you're saying 
X, Y, and Z when really you said A, B, and C. And so that's a straw man. The idea is you construct this argument, you easily knock it down and it makes you look like you've defeated the, uh, you know, your interlocutor's argument when you really haven't, you've addressed something that they didn't. That's, yeah, that wasn't run, their we, argument. We run into that now a lot more. I mean, Mormonish is, is about nine months old, I think, and mm -hmm. getting more and more people paying attention. And so now we're starting, we know we've arrived because we're getting ad hominem attacks. You're clowns. You, know? <laughs> you guys are idiots. You know? Not addressing any point that we made or anything, but these kind of attacks. So to Landon and I were like, all right, we're clowns. This is great. You know? <laughs> yeah. But I was thinking about what you said about the different criteria. And, and I noticed a lot of post-Mormons will say, oh, if I can just get my family to watch this documentary on Scientology, you know, maybe they'll look at it, and they'll go, Th that's crazy how, you know, and hopefully see themselves in it. Or maybe I can get them to watch Wild Wild Country about the Russian Nishi, and maybe they'll see some of the, you know, parallels. Most of the time that doesn't happen. You're not able, you can critically, you know, deconstruct mm -hmm. some of these other programs or religion outside of the ones that you were raised in, but you can't turn it back on yourself. So I see that as a frustration of the post-Mormon world that they're saying, can't you just watch this and see, and, and nobody really can. And, and we were guilty of that too, or a victim of that too when we were all inside. So it's interesting to watch. I think what, an example of a Texas sharpshooter for me then is probably uh, Nahum and Bountiful. <laughs> I get those ones pulled up. Oh, they found Nahum. All the time. They're supposed to find him and Bountiful. It's There's this <laughs> oasis on the side of the ocean. Well, you know, it doesn't have any trees. Uh, there's no, uh, you know, how did they build a ship? How did he get ore? How did he have a kiln? None of that's there, but, you know, hey, it, it's a place that has water by the side of the ocean. Therefore, uh, that's got to be it. That That's a hit, but there's all these misses all around it. Right. Yep. That's a perfect example of the Texas sharpshooter fallacy. To your question, Rebecca, like what are some common logical fallacies? There are actually two resources I would point people to. So uh, my oldest, it was his 10th birthday yesterday. And one of the things that we got for him was there's this great book uh, aimed at kids about his age or even a little younger called um, The Illustrated Book of Bad Arguments, the How to Discover the Lost Art of Making Sense. And it literally goes through these step by step and gives you examples of what does a Texas sharpshooter fallacy look like? What is an equivocation fallacy? So that's another one that comes up all the time in Mormon context. That's where people use the ambiguity of language to basically define terms to mean one thing and then create a, a misleading impression when they redefine it kind of like privately. So that's actually one, if people wanna look at uh, the episode we did to, together on Mormon Stories, Rebecca, that's one I think that President Hinckley was engaged in basically during his 2003 statement by saying, no tithing funds will be used, but then saying invested reserve funds will be used. And it turns out that actually meant invested reserve tithing funds, but funds. that wasn't told clearly <laughs> to anyone, right? So I'm glad that we talked so much about Texas sharpshooters because that's the first example I have. So I have this great quote that I pulled from Fair Mormon. So Fair Mormon did a series of responses to the CES letter and they go on for a long time and they are full of fallacies. There's ad hominem, straw manning, but there's, there's this great quote that is found in so many of these where they say things like this. If you're going to claim that Joseph Smith failed in whatever, I pulled this specifically from one about the Book of Abraham issues, they then say, you now have to explain all of how he got so many things right. 
So I've pulled this from Fair Mormon, but I've heard this type of apologetic from people like Brian Hales in regards to where does the Book of Mormon language come from, where do the words come from. This is not only a Texas sharpshooter fallacy and a special pleading fallacy, it's also a red herring fallacy and I think a profound misunderstanding of how evidence actually works. So let's start with the last of those and then we'll work backwards. So evidence. So when you hear the term evidence, Landon, what do you, you think of when you hear the term evidence? Uh, support, something that supports the argument or the position. Some, it, it either physical or an eyewitness that supports the, the belief that you're, that you're thinking or, or the belief that you're forming. Yeah. Is that pretty similar with what you would think, Rebecca? Yeah, I think something that helps you, you may have a conclusion, helps you to arrive at the truthfulness of that conclusion. Like if I go outside and the ground is all wet, I'm thinking it's raining. That's probably some evidence that it has rained. Of course, it could be the sprinkler. But, you know, the, I think you do that throughout your entire life. You look at things that confirm what you're thinking and then you, you know, change uh, the result based on what that evidence is because it can change. So. Yeah, yeah. And the definition I really like to pull from, obviously, as a lawyer, is I like to pull from our rules of evidence where it talks about what relevant evidence is. So relevant evidence, and both of you are right in line with this, but this is a little bit more lawyerese, but I like this definition. It is anything that has a tendency to make a fact more or less probable than it would be without the evidence. So your example of I go outside and it's wet, that is a perfect example of evidence for two different propositions, right? That it was raining or that the sprinklers were on. So then the, uh, the second part of this definition is that that fact is of consequence in determining the action. And that's because we're talking about legal actions. But if we were to apply this definition kind of more colloquially, all it's really saying is that evidence is anything which is going to make something you're trying to decide more or less likely. That's, the, that's as low as the bar is. I like, Landon, when you were talking about your personal experience dealing with those records um, that you had to deal with for your job, because the way you thought about it, like, well, what can I show to support my claim? That's another really good way to understand evidence, because that's the way that lawyers and attorneys have to think about how we're going to approach court cases is what can I show? Like, not that I don't believe, don't believe like a client or the other side, but really, it comes down to what you can demonstrate. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I, <clears throat> I think that's lost in, in religion. Uh, people <laughs> go to what do I feel, not what yeah. can I demonstrate or how can I show. And I, I guess people will look and say, well, look at the change it made in my life. Therefore, that's evidence uh, for that, that belief. And I, I guess that's evidence that that a belief can change your life or can have a positive effect in your life, it doesn't necessarily mean that the story behind it's true or that that, it, that it's factual, but it could, it could be factual if it actually changes your life. But that same fact that changes my life may not change somebody else's life. Mm -hmm. and, and therefore, is it is it a fact if it changes mine but doesn't change theirs? <laughs> Yeah, that's a great example. I actually, so this might, might be controversial for someone who's no longer in the church, but I actually think a lot of people who leave uh, Mormonism or, or go into a more nuanced phase sometimes actually overlook the, the evidential value of experience, which is 
what Mormons would say, like, oh, it's good fruit. But I love the way the caveat that you gave, Landon, which is, but if things are real, they should affect people the same way, right? That's the idea almost that came in our scientific revolution of reproducibility or falsifiability. I should be able to put something to the test and replicate the results. Even in my view, even if it's a spiritual experience, right? The Book of Mormon makes a very specific promise that if you do something, which is you read it and you pray about it and you ask if it's not true, then you'll receive an answer. And so that to me is a test that can be put to the test, if that makes sense. So even though it's experiential based, it's based on a spiritual experience that probably can't be demonstrated. I mean, anything in social psychology for the most part is going to be the same way, right? It's all based on survey data, uh, interviews, same type of experiential data. And so I think sometimes it can be disclaimed a little bit too easily. But one of the things I think that's important to remember um, and why I wanted to talk about kind of the Texas sharpshooter fallacy is I think it's important to remember that not all evidence is created equal, right? So if I have a bunch of different um, evidence, I, I, let's go back to Rebecca's example because I like it, of determining whether the sprinklers made the grass wet or the rain made the grass wet, right? So there are different ways that we could look at different pieces of evidence. So it is wet. So it's, we think it may be one of those two. It could be some third possibility that we haven't even considered, but there are different pieces of evidence that can be absolutely just conclusive. And I feel like this is something that especially in Mormon apologetic circles is completely ignored. So if we're trying to determine, you know, Rebecca and I are trying to determine what made her grass wet, the rain or the sprinklers, it matters a whole lot if she has a sprinkler system installed in her lawn, right? It can't be the sprinklers. <laughs> that would be key. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That one piece of evidence can be absolutely conclusive. And I can just tell you from having tried cases, both to judges and to juries, there are absolutely single pieces of evidence that are conclusive. It doesn't matter how good a, let's say the state is prosecuting someone in a criminal action. They may have a great circumstantial case which is, you know, motive, opportunity, they had the same weapon. But if you have video of them at the time the murder or crime happened in a different location, it doesn't matter how many pieces of evidence point to that person or you have a DNA result is an even better ironclad one, right? That it couldn't have been that person. Those are things that I think sometimes are ignored. I hear this talking point just so often where people say, oh, I've studied criticisms of the church and I've studied... I've studied apologetics my whole life and I understand there's, there's good reasons to doubt the church, but there's good reasons to believe too. And it's like, well, have you considered like what reasons to doubt there are? Because I feel like there are some fairly conclusive pieces of evidence, but that's just me. Can I ask you a question? Sure. When we're talking about that, we're basically talking about absolute truth, but there is a thing, relative truth. I mean, if, if, if I'm a, you know, if I'm a white guy in 1950s Alabama and I go walking into a white neighborhood, I could say, oh, this is a safe neighborhood. This is, a, I feel perfectly safe here. Whereas a black man in 1950 Alabama walks into this white neighborhood, he could say, I don't feel safe here. I feel like uh, I'm, I might be threatened here. Um, we both ha have a different truth of the same situation. How does that relative truth versus absolute truth? tie into that 
Man, that is such a great question. Um, I was really thinking about propositional logic when I'm talking about logical fallacies. Um, and I'm trying to think of how that would compare. So when I say propositional logic for people who, who might not be aware, there's really, well, there's three, but there's really two big classes of formal logical structures. There's deductive arguments and inductive arguments, right? Deductive arguments start with a very general proposition and make deductions down to a true conclusion. And one of the things that's important to understand about deduction is that if the premise is true, deductively, and you reach the conclusion deductively, it is always true. Now, there's a huge problem with deduction, which is how can you be sure that your experience that you've used to inform your general proposition is always true? So a good example of this is people sometimes use this uh, colloquial phrase, the black swan fallacy, which is before we discovered black swans, we had no idea there was such a thing as a black swan, right? We thought they were all white. And so at the time, people could have said, and it would have been fairly uncontroversial to say all swans are white. That could be your first deductive premise. Then you could have a picture of a black swan, right? And say, this creature is not white. Therefore, this creature is not a swan. That is an argument that is valid in structure, but it's incorrect because the first premise is incorrect. I know I'm taking a really roundabout way to answer your question, Landon, but it's because it's a great question. Induction, the foil of that induction works from specific observations and then tries to make inductive arguments about the general proposition. So science, the scientific method uses both induction and deduction. One of the important differences though, is that induction is always probabilistic. So it's based on your observation. Um, and I was using this example with my son last night when I was explaining the difference between deduction and induction because he was getting into that book last night. Inductively, so he's allergic to dogs, right? And one of the ways that we figured that out is every time he was around dogs, he started to sneeze. And we know that people who have allergies to dogs usually sneeze. But the thing about induction is that first premise, every time I'm around dogs, I sneeze, super matters how many times you've been around dogs in that definition of every time, right? It could be one time and you could have had a cold going on for days before. It could be a thousand times. And so the big thing about induction is that it's based on experience and it's probabilistic. So to come back and answer your question, maybe in a super roundabout way, maybe not even answer it at all, is I think it has to do with how we process reality differently, how we experience things differently and how we note. Um, I think one of the realities, especially about um, like how we process, whether it's emotion or situations like that that are based on race, is that I have only lived in my skin. So when my wife and I, have to have discussions and I understand because I understand and trust her honesty that she doesn't experience things the same way I do. But while I can believe that I can't really wrap my head around how she feels until we continue to talk about it. And so I think that's where arguments um, and good arguments that are both valid and sound um, and to try and tie a bow on just the primer on prepositional logic, an argument is valid if it has the right structure, which is just that the conclusion follows from the premises. An argument is sound if the premises are true, making the conclusion, if it's deductive, true, or making it 
you know, have some assurance of its probability if it's an inductive argument. So that was a super roundabout way to answer your question, <laughs> which really boiled down to, I don't know, Landon, people <laughs> experience reality differently. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, it was a great answer. And it makes me think of <laughs> so many apologists that say, I start with my conclusion and then I oh. make sure that everything I find, I throw out the things that don't support it and everything I find leads to that conclusion. And it's just <laughs> such an interesting way to look at things. Some of them have come flat out and said, this is what I do. Others, right it's a little more you know just a little more tricky the way they arrive at it but it really is i have a conclusion that must be supported and i'm right. going to find a way to do it yeah and I, I brought that up because i think so many times in the church it's because this is right for me it's right yeah. for you and i don't think that's at all is at all accurate you know uh just because it makes you happy and your family I may have a family that has a gay child and mm -hmm. they have a horrible experience with the with the church and what they're being told and it doesn't work for me. And and so I, I see that a lot. Oh, it's right for me, therefore it's right for you. We just saw a comment exactly. on our on one of our temple uh things in one of the our, our Cody Temple episode, and mm -hmm. one of the people said, um, oh well both members and non-members will be blessed by this temple. Why are they fighting it? Well, that, yes, it might bless your life, <laughs> but these people who can't go to it and it's just blocking their view and their night sky, they can't go to it. So that just because it's right for you doesn't mean it's right for someone else. Right. And I, They I, believe right? that. I believe they believed it when they wrote it and they couldn't see any other point of view that someone wouldn't love to have that there. To others, the temple means nothing. It's just a big white building. What's that doing there? You know, but to this person, just its actual presence there meant something to them. Just seeing it meant something wonderful to them. So yeah, it's very subjective. Yeah. No, and I think that's a great question, Landon, because it is something that happens so often. And I'll even chip in here and say, you know, I spend a lot of time on the Mormon subreddit, which is kind of a weird middle ground. It's not exclusively for ex-members. It's not exclusively for faithful members. But I go there specifically to make sure that I'm engaging with um, very knowledgeable people, whether they're critics or believers, for the most part, that's the crowd you'll find there. It's not that big of a subreddit. It's like 25,000 or something. Um, but for the most part, things are well supported, well sourced. There's no viewpoint discrimination like there are in the faithful subreddits. And um, one of the things that I've seen there from time to time, just to go in hand in hand with your comments, Landon or Rebecca, is there are a lot of people, especially when you talk about um, problems in the church that aren't publicly reported on, like an individual instance of like a, a bishop abusing a kid or um, some settlement with regard to sex abuse or some other situation, right? There are so often where people are making this error of saying, well, I've never been abused by a bishop or I've never had a bad experience. So, and, and what they're really saying is because I've never, you can never also. And so they're making the error. So I am glad that we talked about deduction and induction because they're making the error that their observation sets the general principle. They're making an error in mistaking induction or mistaking their induction for deduction. Yeah. I think I stated that correctly. If not, some mean <laughs> psychology they will, uh, student yeah, we'll hear about it in, the, be in, in the, the comments. comments. They'll call you a clown. <laughs> so get ready. That's right. They'll call me a clown. So to 
to deal with this argument of if you're going to claim Joseph Smith failed, you have to explain all away all of these things that he got right. I wanted to give kind of an example that I think shows how problematic this way of thinking is. So let's say that the three of us are tasked with establishing the validity of an older silver certificate. Okay, so we're looking at some old document. We examine the quality of the consistency of the paper. It matches the right time frame. We date the paper using dating methods that are standard in the industry. It matches. We examine the ink's chemical composition. It matches. It bears all the official markings and has a valid authentic serial number. In every single respect, the silver certificate matches what we would expect from a legitimate one. There is one problem, though, and that is based on the dating on the certificate, it bears the incorrect signature of the treasurer, like it has the wrong treasurer. So according to the folks at Fair Mormon, with this argument of if you're going to claim this person was wrong, you need to explain how they got all these things right. They are saying that the three of us cannot reach a conclusion until we can explain exactly in detail how the counterfeiter, in this case, got all of those details right. And for those who know about Mark Hoffman, I picked this, <laughs> this hypothetical very specifically because... And this leads me back to one of the comments we opened with, right? Evidence is not created equal. So the fact that all of these pieces of evidence indicate that this is a valid silver certificate, Fair Mormon's wrong. It is ultimately irrelevant. And that's what makes it a red herring. So a red herring fallacy, the, the phrase red herring, it, we'll talk about Monty Python later, right, Rebecca? But you of must cut down them. <laughs> You must cut down the mightiest tree in the forest with a herring. <laughs> with a um, herring. <laughs> a herring is a stinky fish that they used to try and use to drag across the path of hunt dogs to lead them off in the wrong direction. And that's exactly what this type of logic is by saying you can't reach a conclusion until you can explain all these things the person got right. And the reality is that's not true. <laughs> like in no reality is that true, except for when it comes to religion. And I think that's one of the reasons that I wanted to highlight the special pleading fallacy, the idea that we're applying different standards for our privileged re religious beliefs versus the those of other groups. And also the Texas sharpshooter, which is, well, I'm going to consider this hit or I'm going to consider these group of hits, even if we're being charitable, more important than the misses. But the reality is, depending on the miss, the miss can be absolutely conclusive, right? Any thoughts on that? Do I have that wrong? Is Fair Mormon right? <laughs> no, no, I absolutely agree. I, I guess, uh, is there ever a time when you can have a, something false uh, in and the overall still be true? Is there a situation where that ever happens? When you say something be false and the overall bill still be true, I'm struggling to understand. There, there's a false aspect to it. You know, we like like we always say about the Book of Mormon, it only takes one anachronism and the Book of Mormon's false. Is there any place where you might find something false, but it could still be true? Have you ever run into a case where that because that's what, you know, everyone. Oh, well, there might be a few problems, but overall, it's it, it, it's all right. You know, just well, takes one. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's a great question, because one of the things that leads me to is um, people are going to hear our comments and hear what I just said and think that I'm saying and I don't want to be straw man. So I'm going to address this right now. 
I am not saying if you find one single thing that's wrong with the church or even one single anachronism in the Book of Mormon that you should throw it out the window. What I'm saying is that we need to think about the standards that we set in how we decide what reality is. And it would be awful presumptuous of me to tell other people how to set that standard. But let me talk really quickly about possibility and probability. So a lot of times apologetic arguments are premised on establishing only possibility, mm -hmm. which is that this is not impossible. That's mostly what they spend their time doing. One of the reasons that I don't believe you can use possibility as your deciding factor in whether or not you believe something is because if you do, there are an infinite number of contradictory things that are possible. So uh, again, with my 10 year old last night, we watched a video on this. Um, he, he's he's an adorable little weirdo and I love him so much, but he's obsessed with science and he's obsessed with genetics. And he was watching this video last night about the possibility that there were alien civilizations that lived here on earth before humans. And that as just so happened, they never advanced to a society where they would leave like a trace. And the entire video is like baiting you along to make this exact point, which is if you use possibility as your decider, you can believe any number of ridiculous, contradictory things. So to go back to our um, water on the grass example, right? It is possible that, you know, fairies put the water on Rebecca's <laughs> lawn. It, it, it is because I can't, when I mean possible, what I mean is I can't disprove it. If we exactly. use, yeah, if we use that as our standard, what can be disproved, that's the reason that we we require proof inside of the courtroom, why there's a burden of proof on the person who makes an affirmative claim is because if it is any other way, our entire system just completely falls apart. Because if your standard is any lower than that, you have to accept multiple contradictory things. And so the standard I think is much better is what is probable, which is what is most likely. Now, I wanna be very clear. There are believers who will say, there are weird examples where what is most likely is not true. And that is absolutely correct. There are times where my, my standard, my decision to believe what is most likely true based on the evidence is wrong, right? There were people who lived a long time ago where the best understanding they had of the solar system was that everything revolved around the earth. That was the, that was the reasonable conclusion based upon their understanding and the best evidence. And they were wrong, but they were still justified in believing the wrong thing because that's what the evidence indicates. I think an even better example is, you know, in physics and in, and in chemistry, we have elementary particles. And when I was in my undergrad degrees in the sciences, so I'm not just a weird lawyer that's obsessed with science. It's kind of my weird uh, fascination outside of what I do at my day job. Um, when I was in school, there were elementary particles known as protons, neutrons, and electrons. But science has allowed us to examine further down. And those are made out of even more fundamental particles. And the reality is, that might not be right too, right? When my when my 10 year old is my age, he might be talking about a completely different set of fundamental elementary particles. But that's why 
I think are the, the epistemology that I attempt to use is to believe what is most probable and to hold those conclusions loosely when presented with new evidence and be willing to change my mind. Yeah, that's, that's great. Cause uh, I think one of the things I hear all the time is well, with God, nothing is impossible. Well, if you use that <laughs> argument, then you have no standard because there exactly. is no way to differentiate anything. If nothing is impossible, there is no probability. <laughs> the probability is, is infinite, uh, which means that there, there's no way to differentiate anything. So you have to put some standard. You can't put God, you know, with God, nothing is impossible as your standard or you really have no standard. Right. And that really reminds me of, I love that comment, Landon. It really reminds me of early on in my faith crisis, I actually had a dream and it wasn't a vision. I want to be very clear. I'm not claiming I had some vision, <laughs> but I had a dream, which in my worldview is my subconscious processing things and trying to make decisions, right? And in this dream, I uh, I had basically like an interview. And this was like at the very beginning where I'm starting to reach conclusions in my faith crisis. So kind of a traumatic time. And um, I have this dream that I am in a police interrogation room talking to Jesus. But he's in like a gray suit. Like, But somehow I knew it was Jesus. You know how in your dreams, like there's just like weird pieces that all fit together? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he sits down with me and he has like a file and he lays it out and he says, I am so sorry to tell you, but Joseph Smith was a true prophet and it was all true. And I remember I just, in the dream, I just looked at him and I said, really? Like the 14 year old. <laughs> and I just like start raising all these issues. And he's like, well, it's not really true in like the way they claimed it was like, there's a lot of true things. And the point is, the dream was just funny to me. But when I woke up, I the feeling that I had and what has really lingered with me is any God. So I've been taught since the time I was very little, as have both of you, that God is perfectly loving and understands us perfectly. And in my view, if that's true, if that proposition is true, any God that is that that fits that definition is going to simply understand that I am a non-resistant non-believer. If there were good reasons to believe these things, if I really felt there were good reasons to believe them, I would. I have like the church was working perfectly for me until it wasn't. I just am convinced that it's not true in the way that they claim it's true. And so I guess what I'm saying is almost like a reverse Pascal's wager, right? There's that idea like, well, maybe you should just pretend like it's true and God will believe you. I feel so secure in what I was told about God that I'm not at all worried that if it were true because of the reasons that I believe it isn't, that it would ever be held against me. So if people are in that same boat, I guess I would just kind of share that perspective, the feeling that um, I feel like I could look God, Jesus, whatever is up there, if there is anything, and explain, I did not believe these things because I did not have good reasons to believe them. 
Yeah, no, that's great. And and I love that dream because I, I make this comment all the time too. If there is a judgment and I'm up there facing God, Jesus, and Joseph Smith, I mean, first I would look and say, really, this guy, come on, come on. You're, you know, but I would say the same thing. You gave me a brain. I did what I was supposed to do with my brain. I stand by every decision I made based on the probability and possibility of the evidence that I saw. And I see this a lot, Landon, and I both see this a lot in all the post-Mormons that interact with us, especially in our book club. And, and it's interesting because everybody, you know, we vote on the books that we read and mm -hmm. everybody wants to read science. They want to read the pure science, things like that, because I think they recognize exactly what you said. If there's new evidence, you can change your point of view. You can be fluid with that. You can move new things come out. So they really want to read, you know, they want to read geology and they want to read biology because I think for so long, everything was so subjective and just kind of put through that lens that we were all looking at it, that post-Mormons are like, nope, show me the evidence, you know, science. I mean, and, and it's possible that pendulum swings a little far both both directions and, and eventually comes back to a more neutral ground. But everybody definitely wants to be able to follow conclusions, follow probable evidence and make decisions based on that. Because I think for so long, they were not able to, you were just kind of told to ignore <laughs> anything right. like that. Put it on your shelf. Isn't that what the shelf is basically is to take right. those things and go, oh, I'll just worry about that later. And yeah, people can't do that anymore. Right. And to your comment about science, I mean, one of the things that's always really resonated with me, even when I was a believing Mormon, like I said, my undergrad uh, degree is in the sciences. And one of the reasons is because like human history, if you look at the, the broad strokes purposes of human history, and I don't even care for the purposes of this exercise, whether you believe the earth, could, like that history goes back 6,000 years or 200,000 years as far as human history goes, right? But it is indisputable that human history was savage and brutal. And right about the year, you know, right in the 1600s, 1700s, we see this absolute spike in human quality of life that just goes off the charts up. And in my view, and I don't, I don't see how anyone could say it was anything else, right? Because the scientific revolution and the beginning stages of critical thinking hit the scene at that time. There are people who will say, well, that all comes out of the Judeo-Christian ethic. I've heard apologists say stuff like that, even general theism apologetics. And it's like, well, general Christianity had the run of things like for the entire 1500, 1600 years before that. And I don't know, we had like the Black Plague, the Inquisition, we had lots of things that were like pretty savage. And yeah, all of a great. sudden, yeah, all of a sudden when we have the scientific revolution, we just have, and the enlightenment, we just have human quality of life just spike off the charts. And this isn't my original thought. This is something that I really resonated with when I read Steven Pinker's book, Enlightenment Now, which is just laying out that even though the church sends a message all the time, and not just the church, a lot of evangelical churches send this message all the time that we're in the last days and you know all of this stuff about how evil the world is, it's indisputable that we live in the best time ever. Like there are people who died 4,000 years ago who would give anything to live in this time with the 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 medical and scientific advances we have and the comfort that we enjoy I, I don't understand how anyone can see it any other way if they've spent any amount of time reading history um, because that's just the reality okay well, i have you need, to, you need to join our book club because <laughs> every book we you're read mentioning we've read well, every single one <laughs> yeah i i think i'm in the facebook group because i i'm pretty I sure i picked are. up 
a few of them because of that. Yeah, um, well, post-Mormons so just have a certain kind of niche that they like to read. And it's these kinds of books that just get you thinking and you realize, oh, that's why I felt that way. That's why I've been thinking that way. And right. Yeah, there are some giants out there, these authors that can really help you explore a new paradigm in your life as you're looking for one and deconstructing. So absolutely. Great. And this this last little. So now we'll move to our second example and, and then I'll let you guys wrap up as much as I've enjoyed our conversation. I don't want to take too much <laughs> so of your good. time. Oh, no. So, um, good. so when we talk about, you know, this idea of apocalypse, uh, apocalypticism, which is the idea that there's some chosen group that's fighting against the forces of darkness. One of the things, uh, one of the apologetics that comes up in the church all the time is this idea that opposition is evidence that the church is true. Right. And I think I can't remember if it was before we were filming or after we started, but you mentioned you get a lot of comments like that. Do you guys just kind of mind explaining the typical idea that you hear from Mormons that opposition is evidence of the truth of it? We, we do get those comments now more and more. And, and people will just literally write in comments on our different episodes. This information just strengthens my testimony more. You know, they, how would you describe it, Landon? We're getting that more and more often, I think. It's a very interesting way that you just have to, I think I described it like throwing mud on the wall. I believe it's true because you've said this, you know, that, that somehow the stronger the argument, the stronger your testimony becomes because you've been told that there will be this opposition. You've been primed for this moment to be able to look evidence in the face or facts and say, oh no, I know what you're trying to do. I've been warned. That's kind of how I look at it. What do you think, Landon? It's that persecution complex and yes. people have it everywhere for every single yeah. thing. If you, if you make an argument, you're persecuting, you're attacking God and that's Satan. And therefore Satan is fighting against him. And therefore it's true. The church is true because it's been prophesied Satan would would uh, go against the church and therefore you're Satan and you're, pro <laughs> and uh, all you're saying is, you, you know, like it, with the Kobe temple, it's like, they're just saying, don't put it there. It's not zoned there. Move it somewhere that's zoned for it. No, that's right. proof. The church is true because Satan is trying to destroy the temple, the temple and he's attacking <laughs> the temple. And you guys are, are proving to me the church is true. And you're going, no, it's, it's a zoning thing. Yeah. <laughs> right. And we had a similar comment on that, that tithing lawsuit yeah. video that we talked about that I paused in the middle of it, Rebecca, that kind of yeah, led I to us even being here today. Right. Yep. Someone was saying the three of you attacking God's true church just demonstrates it's true. The other example that I could clearly think of is in Joseph Smith history. Joseph Smith directly says, or puts into the mouth of Moroni, that his name would be had for good and evil throughout the whole world, right? And so members can use that as basically like this preloaded excuse to say, oh, well, you know, your claim that Joseph Smith participated in a system of coercive marriages in founding polygamy inside the church or furthering polygamy inside the church, that's really just proof he was a true prophet. And it's like, okay, so let's talk about that idea really quickly. So um, again, I'm going to come off like I read a lot more than I actually do with how many books we're talking about in this interview, I promise, because I have to read all day for work, so I don't do it as much as I'd like to. But my favorite novel ever um, was the book Dune by Frank Herbert. And there's a series of six books, but there's this idea in Dune that I want to talk about for a second. So in Dune, you've got these different factions. And one of the factions is this faction of um, tricky I don't know how to say it, like tricky um, 
I, I want to say tricky women, but that does not come across the right way. <laughs> in the book, they're called, they use the weirding way. So just so everyone knows, this is not me making it up. But the idea is there's this group of, of females that call themselves the B'nai Gesserit. And they're obsessed with this idea of uniting these different noble houses through breeding to create their savior, which they call the Kwisatz Haderach. For people who have never read or seen Dune, I'm going to sound so weird, but <clears throat> that's what they're trying to do. Is If you've never read the book or seen the new Denis Villeneuve movie, which was fantastic, yeah. Dune is kind of premised, it's like set in a sci-fi world, but it's also premised weirdly on like the medieval feudal system. So you've got like an emperor and all these different great houses. And so a little bit like George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones or something, you have these different like competing groups. And the B'nai Gesserit are working kind of behind the scenes behind all of these groups to create this Kwisatz Haderach. And one of the ideas that Herbert builds in this book that's really, really neat, um, and I won't spoil any of the plot, but one of the ideas that he builds in is the B'nai Gesserit use this thing called the Missionaria Protectiva, which is what they do is they take B'nai Gesserit sisters and they send them to a planet and they they literally seed the planet with superstition and ancient religion in in specific archetypes and specific patterns. And the idea is, and this is part of the, the um, plot of the first book, is that when a B'nai Gesserit sister or a B'nai Gesserit ally is later on that planet and needs to hook in to those religious archetypes and that religious imagery and that superstition, it's already been seeded there. And so they can create basically the fulfillment of prophecy, but it's not legitimate prophecy. It's just they created this pattern and then all of a sudden it's created. And so in that way, it's almost like a pre-excuse. The other example for those who aren't Dune fans or my weird rambling about Frank Herbert doesn't make any sense is, you know, let's say that I've been having an affair on my wife, which for the record, honey, I have not. Um, but let's say I have. And I know that um, maybe that evidence is going to come to light. And I decide to say, hey, you might get a few messages from <laughs> this person that's going to say that I've been having an affair with them. But just so you know, they're like totally crazy. And, you know, I rejected their advances. And that's why they're doing this, just, just to get back at me. Now, those pre-excuses need to be evaluated like any other claim. And that's the entire point of what I'm trying to say, is the idea that someone creates an excuse before an event happens should not be convincing to anyone. And so we have this great example, Rebecca and I, we were exchanging Life of Brian quotes. Do you kind of mind explaining that scene, Rebecca? <laughs> if you have it there in front of you, I think that you should read it because uh, poor Brian is mistaken for the Messiah. And he's like, this is not me. But of course, every excuse he tries to give, and hopefully Colby will read this, uh, makes people more and more convinced that he is much to his, you know, great concern as he tries to say, no, this is not me. <laughs> yeah, I do have the exchange here. It's great. For those who haven't seen Monty Python's Life of Brian, yeah. it's one of the weirdest, most sacrilegious movies, but it's fantastic that it's a it thing is. that exists. If you look into the history of like why it even exists, it was funded, I think, by George Harrison from the Beatles. And it wouldn't exist but for that because it, it came out, I think, in the late 70s and was so sacrilegious that it was like banned yeah, in many instantly. countries, like up until the current day or like within the last 10 years. But here's here's the, the quote from Life of Brian. And if you know Monty Python's 
dry British sarcastic humor, this will resonate with you. So Brian, uh, I guess to kind of explain the backstory, Brian was born on the same day as Jesus in Bethlehem and his entire life, basically, he gets mixed up for Jesus or he's like around the events of Jesus. Right. And so the people in um, in the movie think that Brian is the Messiah. They mistake him for the Messiah. And this is the exchange. So Brian says this whole crowd that's gathered out there, he says, I'm not the Messiah. And then they say back. I say you are, Lord, and I should know I've followed a few. And then they say, hail the Messiah. And Brian says, I'm not the Messiah. Will you please listen? I'm not the Messiah. Do you understand? And then one of the crowd members says, only the true Messiah would deny his divinity. And then Brian says, well, what sort of chance does that give me? All right, then I am the Messiah. And then the crowd says, he is, he is the Messiah. <laughs> and we didn't play the whole clip because we don't want to get a copyright strike. But we don't if, want to strike. But everyone go watch YouTube. it. It's look so it entertaining. And it's it has so that wonderful hilarious. song, <laughs> Always Look on the Bright Side of Life, where everyone's being crucified. Yeah, exactly. I have to say that my father, who's, you know, the most faithful TBM in the whole world, he and I watched this together, I think on VHS, like in the early 80s. He laughed hysterically all the way through it, which is so funny to me because as Colby says, it is just wonderfully uh, irreverent and, and just so entertaining. But yeah, that's a perfect example right there. He can't win, right? There's nothing he can say right. that can win. And, and where, what that leads us to is they've created an unfalsifiable proposition. And this is really, again, something that comes out of the sciences and Karl Popper and his idea of falsifiability, which is that anything that's scientific basically should be able to be replicated and she should be able to be falsified, which is um, even if it's something for which there is no, you know, one piece of evidence that falsifies it, any scientific theory, and I would actually expand that and say really any theory worth caring about, if we're talking about epistemology and separating truth from what's just opinion, that's really where I set my standard is if it can't be falsified, if someone's idea can't be falsified. And again, not setting aside like spiritual experiences, but they should be able to be replicated and people should be able to get the same results out of the same experience. But anytime someone creates an unfalsifiable proposition, which this apologetic of a pre-excuse or opposition becoming evidence is a huge problem because it creates this unfalsifiable proposition. I think to even just tie a bow on this, uh, one example is like flat people who believe in a flat earth, right? The equivalent is saying like anytime you show them evidence, like you take them up in a plane and you show them evidence that the earth is a sphere, right? And they say like, well, of course you're going to do that. Like you work for NASA or you work for an airline and they think somehow that opposition, what, what viewing opposition as evidence does is you actually take disconfirming evidence, the opposite of evidence, evidence that indicates your proposition and conclusion isn't true, and you turn it around and make it paradoxical evidence, which is not a thing, right? And that's why I like um, the life of Brian quote, and I like thinking about um, positions that are unfalsifiable because honestly, I consider unfalsifiable uh, propositions dangerous because they're completely based on nothing. And I think that's what leads us back really to you know the Sagan quote from both Carl and Sasha that we started with, which is, it's dangerous to believe things just because we want them to be true. And so if we really care about whether our beliefs are true, 
we'll think about how to set epistemic standards and we'll talk about or we'll think about um, applying those standards evenly across different things in our life, even things we want to be true. Um, I think the other thing is just owning when we want things to be true. And I'll give you an example from my own life. So if people think this guy doesn't turn his, uh, you know, his scrutiny inwards. I have a belief that I recognize I can't disprove the opposite, but I believe it anyways. And the example is free will. So there are a lot of thinkers. Um, Sam Harris is one that I think about all the time who make a lot of very good and compelling arguments that we really do not have free will. And the reality is, as I've looked at those arguments, as I've listened to counter arguments, I don't find the counter arguments completely convincing, but I also don't agree with Sam Harris, <laughs> but I can't disprove his proposition. And the reason is, at least on that uh, point, I am willing to lower my epistemic standard because I want to believe that my choices matter enough that I lower my standard a little bit when it comes to that. And I don't want to say it's a blatantly irrational position because I have good reasons for believing that our choices matter and believing in free will. It's just that I can't dis I can't I don't feel like I can disprove the alternative hypothesis, which is that we don't have free will. And that could be an entire different discussion in how I think free will <laughs> actually exists. But I'm not going to do that today. Um, I wanted to end, if that's OK, with one. Uh, one more quote from Carl Sagan this time from his book, Demon Haunted World, which I read this summer and just absolutely loved it. Like that, if people are looking for a critical thinking 101, that book is incredible. And Carl Sagan is a very, very good author. And he has this great quote that you'll see probably pop up from time to time. He said, one of the saddest lessons of history is this. If we have been bamboozled long enough, we tend to reject any evidence of the bamboozle. We are no longer interested in finding the truth. The bamboozle has captured us. It is simply too painful to acknowledge, even to ourselves, that we've been taken. Once you give a charlatan power over you, you almost never get it back. And so I think that really nicely sums up why epistemology matters. There are other thoughts that I think, you know, people should think about. Um, here are three, just kind of in closing, to kind of think about these, which is presuppositionalism, look that up, the problem of hard solipsism, which is when people say, well, do you assume that logic works? That's where people are getting at the problem of hard solipsism, which is how can you prove that you're not in the matrix? How can you prove you're not a brain in a vat? The reality is no one can solve that problem, and anyone who's using it as an argument is just engaging in, I think, bad faith arguments. And then the idea of bias. <clears throat> this is one that I think comes up in church circles a lot in apologetic circles, right? So your example, Rebecca, that you had earlier from the apologist that says, well, I start with, you know, I basically start with the presupposition. That's, he, that's not the language he uses, but that's what he's saying. I'm starting with the assumption that I'm right, and I'm going to fit everything into that paradigm. That's both presuppositionalism and bias. And one of the most interesting things to me in uh, Mormon apologetic circles and even just general theism apologetic circles is this idea that everyone, even non-believers, have some bias and don't they don't believe because of their bias, but I believe because of my bias. And that's a that's a really weird thing again that people should think and talk about. But thank you for having me on Mormonish and thanks for <laughs> talking to me about epistemology. I guess I kind of 
talked for a long time there. Do you guys have any closing thoughts? Not at about all. Not at all. No, we love it. And and I have to say, Free Will by Sam Harris was the very first book three years ago that we ever read in the book club, just kind of oh, wow. to set the stage. Because yeah. exactly this trajectory you're talking about are what post-Mormons are interested in diving into. Demon Haunted World is our book for the Good Book Club for October. So if anybody out oh. there wants to find us online, come and join us for that discussion. It's incredible. But I was thinking a little bit about what you said. I, I feel like the state that it's imperative that these things are true, you know, in my belief system, they have to be, I think a lot of people labor under that, and will do anything subconsciously to make that be true. And I think one final thing I'd like to maybe just throw out there, I feel that that recently, that idea that that um, truths, <laughs> untruths are true, um, you know, the, the idea that um, enemies are out there. I've heard apostles and prophets past and even present more and more talk about our enemies. Don't you think, Landon, we hear this all the time, our enemies um, just kind of slid in there into talks and to addresses, something's written, just to, this idea to kind of, like you said, preload all of us to imagine that there is somebody after us. There is, I mean, I'm talking about in a religious context, there are people that are trying to attack us and we need to really, you know, steel ourselves against that I think of I don't know if you heard Colby Kyle McKay's um, mm -hmm. talk a while ago yeah and it was all about that it was like we know there's compelling we call him compelling Kyle in a very cute way but there's compelling evidence um, I, I, about some of these things there are there are truths there's a lot of reasons to not believe that means you should believe even harder you know that's Satan so they're already priming everybody um, I think with even more intent um, kind of inoculating people against these ideas. What do you guys think about that? I just noticed the word enemy all the time creeping into what they're saying lately. Well, I, I, I was going to point to uh, what you talked about, something being uh, not being falsifiable. Uh, we've been doing uh, the gospel topics essays with mm -hmm. the backyard professor. We've been doing a series. And as we go through there, they make all these arguments for, you know, how Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon, why the multiple first vision accounts. But at the conclusion of every single essay, they say, it doesn't matter what the evidence is. The We can never know can never whether know. this is true or not, other than by the Spirit. So they tell you right off, this is not falsifiable. You, we can have this argument, but you can't tell anything from that. Don't worry about it. Whenever they tell you, don't worry about it. You should be you should worried worry. about it because they're <laughs> saying, no, 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 there's no way anyone can prove this. So you just have to have faith in Jesus and believe anyway. And that's just simply not true. There is absolutely ways you can falsify that, that these can be falsifiable. And as mm -hmm. we said, it only takes one thing uh, in, in a lot of cases to show uh, that no, this can't be true because of this. And and if you just open your eyes and see it, you say, oh, and then all of a sudden you see something else, then you see something else, then you see something else. And the whole, the whole uh, house of cards comes falling down. Yeah. And I like that you brought up faith landed because I did want to kind of close, you know, I'm always, I'm always um, cognizant of the fact that there are still believers that will watch stuff like this or people who are in nuanced spaces. And like, I guess the last little closing thing I would say is in my worldview, when I was a believer, faith was a gap filler for things we didn't know. And I'm not saying that it has no space, but this idea that faith can trump like direct evidence of what we do know, that 
becomes really problematic to me. And to go back to, you know, like the dream and the realization I had after the dream experience, I just don't, I just can't believe in a God that would willingly make the question. Like, I guess I would put it this way. I will not feel bad on judgment day if I fail the trick question exam. If my experience and looking at the world's trajectory has shown me that requiring people to back up their beliefs with evidence or to back up their claims with evidence has made, and the scientific method have made human life immeasurably better. Why would I not use that tool in every facet of my life? That seems like any God that would want me to do that. I, I don't understand that. If God was able to communicate to Saul and Paul, Saul or Paul, I mean, I didn't mix those up um, or uh, Peter or Joseph Smith, or Alma the Younger. Uh, I've been here for years, um, and supposedly he knows the you know the number of hairs on my head, so he knows exactly what will convince me. And so I, I just will refuse to feel bad if I can't be convinced. And I know that that's going to hit believers weird. They'll be like, "You're just throwing faith out the window." And the truth is, I'm not. But believing in spite of evidence is just not. I guess I would say to go back to like the special pleading fallacy we talked about, right? What belief system would that epistemic standard not prove true? The answer is every single one. If every single person with religious beliefs only believed that's what that level of faith is, right? Just believe in spite of the evidence. You'll never change your mind about anything. And the reality is every time I've changed my mind uh, based on evidence, I feel like it's made my life better. I feel like it's made my marriage better. I feel like it's made me a better dad. And so why would I not use that tool in every facet of my life? And that's just kind of my closing thought is, you know, being aware of these things, being aware of how valid epistemology works, I think really helps. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. And and we've mentioned so many books in this episode, (laughs) which is wonderful. We're going to put links to everything or, you know, titles and authors. And just we appreciate you so much, Colby. I mean, I think sometimes this topic is a little hard for some people to wrap their brains around. But I think your examples and the way that you described it, don't you think, Landon? I think it's made it very accessible. And it's so important to be able to think in this way, because it does. It improves quality of life in every way, I think, and especially as we talk about with children. Don't you think, Landon, any final thoughts from you? No, I think it's important to learn all these different terms, you know, the different arguments, uh, you know, the straw man, the ad hominem, Mm -hmm. the Texas shooter, uh, because you start (laughs) to see them uh, used against you or or you might see yourself using them against somebody and then you recognize Uh, that's not a fair, that's not a fair statement. You know, I can't attack the person because of their argument. I need to attack their argument if I don't agree with it. So, yeah, right. And for believers, (laughs) and for believers, like I'm not telling them to study epistemology and to study um, logical fallacies because I want them necessarily to agree with me. They can keep their conclusion, Mm -hmm. but let's have valid reasons for reaching those conclusions. Because again, to to come back to how we started with logical fallacies, right? A a conclusion reached through a logical fallacy is not necessarily wrong. So I know that's where believers are going to be sitting if they're hearing this. But let's find non-fallacious reasons, non-fallacious arguments to reach those same conclusions if you're on the believing side. That would be my ask. Because there are people like me who are sincerely looking for good reasons to believe. So I'd love to hear them. 
Well, there it is. He's he's thrown it out there. He'd love to hear them. So no, and I think you you captured what our channel what our our channel is all about too. Is we're not trying to make anyone step away, walk away. We're just trying to say let there be consent, understand the information, mm -hmm. and if you look at that information and you know make the decision what's best for you, then everybody's happy. That's great. So we're just trying to present information. And in this episode, ways of thinking more critically and being aware of different arguments that might influence how you see things that you might want to be more aware of. So, all right. Well, thank you, Colby. Thank you, Landon. It's been an absolutely wonderful episode today. Um, if you would like to like and subscribe to us on YouTube, you can see more episodes from Mormonish and all of our fabulous guests like Colby. And we also wanted to make a little announcement. We did talk a lot about books today. And as we've mentioned before, many times, Landon and I, three years ago, this is how we even met and connected, started the Good Book Club. And we do record our meetings because we talk about it all the time. So we make these available. They have been on their own channel, but we are now putting them in a playlist under Mormonish. So starting this week, you'll be able to go to Mormonish, subscribe if you'd like, and then you can access all of our book club meetings because we have some brilliant book club members uh, that lead these discussions of a lot of these books that we discussed today and just a lot of really good information. So if you guys start seeing episodes pop up that say The Good Book Club, that's what that's about is we're kind of going to feed the book club episodes um, onto Mormonish. So, you know, more content if you're interested. If you're not, that's fine, but we're going to put them there. So anyway, like and subscribe, hit the notification bell if you would like to be notified when any of these new episodes pop up. And also, if you'd like to financially support our channel, we appreciate you guys so much. And if you'd like to support us financially uh, as we put our infrastructure of our channel together, we'd appreciate that too. And thank you again, everybody from Mormonish. Until next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Mormonish. We really appreciate our listeners and would love to hear from you if you have a story you'd like to share. You can email us at mormonishpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website, mormonishpodcast.org. And don't forget to look for us on YouTube and like and subscribe. Keep joyful, everybody.